morning, you take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Gospel of John, John chapter 6 this morning. We'll look, Lord willing, we'll see how far we get. I think we'll get through kind of where we left off at 26 through uh, the beginning of this discourse of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life through verse 40, or that's our goal. It's a little bit longer section, so uh, I won't read it for us this morning, but we'll kind of go to it uh, as we get through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for another opportunity to come to you, Lord, even as so often John does as you inspired him by your spirit to do, uh, as he pulls back the curtain, that we might see things that are divine, uh, heavenly things, even as we see the unwillingness of the crowds to come, yet we know that those who do come, you will keep and you will hold and never cast out. Lord, we thank you for the comforting truths we'll see in your sovereign work of salvation this morning, even as we begin um, over the next coming weeks, thinking of, of all that's to come here in this chapter. And even as we think of your purpose and your plan that began at least in um, time at the beginning, but even specifically in the coming of the Messiah at the birth of Christ, as we sing songs this time of year, being mindful, particularly of the birth of Christ, even thinking of John's theology, the way he looks at it as differently than all the other gospels, that Jesus is the word that has become flesh that has dwelt among us. We just ask that you'd be honored with our time. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a sense where every single sermon is a culmination of my entire life. Um, it's just the reality of everything I learned in Sunday school to everything I learned in Bible a class. I went to a Christian high school to seminary and all the rest. Uh, it's what I know, what I've read, and then it culminates in a study of a specific kind of chunk of the passage uh, this morning, say John chapter 6, verse 26 through verse 40, of all that I think and know. And then, of course, you're expositing not so much what I've experienced, but what the text says. And so hopefully the main point this morning is going to be the main point of the text should be the main point of every sermon if it's done rightly, because the Word of God has far more to say, more beneficial to you than anything I could ever say. That said, as I think of my own life, probably the most significant point of growth for me as a Christian came as I entertained some of the questions that get asked throughout this passage. The reality of God's sovereignty in salvation, which we'll kind of begin to look at. We won't even really exhaustively get there, but just as it appears in John chapter 6, we're going to get to next week, 44, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we're to see this reality, this inability, which the scriptures talk about in many places, that apart from God regenerating our hearts, John chapter 3, we won't come to him. But how do we square that with human responsibility and all those things? And I've always found it one interesting thing is I remember thinking through it, I can remember specifically listening to sermons on election, which is a biblical term, you can't get away from it. There's, there's election, there's predestination. You look at Ephesians, it's all over the place. Um, I can remember running, listening to sermons. I had a little lime green iPod and listening to these sermons. And I remember the preacher went all the way back to Genesis and just started going and looked at Adam and Eve. And God made them. He chose to make them, not anybody else, them. Abraham, 
God chose Abraham. Out of everyone else in the world, he chose Abraham. And Hebrews makes it clear that it wasn't because of anything in Abraham. God chose him, and then, of course, Abraham then believed and was counted as righteous. Think of Israel as a nation. Out of all the nations in all the world, God said, you're mine. Which, if you look at Israel as a nation in the Old Testament, you might have picked someone else. But God didn't choose them because they were loyal or faithful. No one would have been, but he was going to make them his own and redeem not only Israel, but through them, all the nations. We're going to see here his love, and we've seen it in John for not just the Jews, but all the world. And so, I think it's important as we come to this, because this question of what God requires is going to be asked. And I, you're going to see, really, verse 30 through 36, you could say from man's perspective, from our side of the fence, this issue of you need to believe, and sadly, you're going to see, yet they, verse 36, do not believe. But lest you think there's some failure in God's plan, we have verse 37 through verse 40, which from God's perspective, his plan is going exactly the way he planned. And everyone who is his will be his, because he is sovereign even over salvation. Again, that's not in contrast. We're still responsible, and no one's going to come who doesn't want to come, but we understand it is God who initiates salvation, and it all goes back to our inability. We're dead in our trespasses, and he needs to make us alive. It needs to be a miracle, John 3, of a new birth that needs to happen. So John chapter 6, we looked at last week, introducing this idea of uh, verse 2. We're going to see that a large crowd was following him. This is before the feeding of the 5,000. But it's important in verse 2 to see they were seeing the signs, because this is important in John's signs, which he was doing on those who are sick. But the issue is, they saw the signs, and they didn't see the substance of the sign, as it were. They simply saw it as food, as Hey, I have something to eat rather than look at the one who is performing this, the one who is giving us this food. They simply focus on the sign, which is extremely clear as we get to verse 26, which is a reminder. Jesus provides. Remember, we hopefully, if you remember last week, we connected the, Jesus walking on the water, the way it clarifies this miracle because you have it sitting in between the bread feeding of the 5,000, the miracle, and then this longer discourse of, I am the bread of life. But it clarifies both, I think, that it's the 12. This is mainly four. There's a focus on them. And really, the issue at hand, which is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to receive him as the disciples receive him into the boat? Or are you going to reject him as the crowds reject him? Because, spoiler alert, go down to verse 65. No one can come to the Father unless it has been granted him from the Father. And that saying, which is, by the way, a saying of God's sovereignty, verse 66, as a result of that, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So that's part of that context of all of this that we need to understand when Jesus goes in and he's going to explain further what they don't understand about particularly the loaves, which is that miracle of him feeding all of those people, maybe up to 20,000 if you include women and children. So go to verse 26, and let's begin. Let's look at the beginning of the discourse. It goes through verse 40, um, but then he kind of turns, and you have the words to the Jews, particularly Jewish leaders, and then he kind of takes the disciples, 
which at that point seems to be more than the 12, because disciples, some of them, many of them, pretty much it seems like all but the 12 and seems walk away. But 59 lets us know he said these things as he taught, he he said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And I'd probably argue it's as good as any place 26 to say, well, some transition here happened where he's teaching and John picks up his teaching. And so I'm kind of thinking probably somewhere here, this interaction and this longer discourse, it's happening at, at a synagogue where he's explaining something much longer than this, but this is John's purpose to record these things for us that we might understand what it is to know who Christ is and course, what he wants us to believe that he is the son of God. And so in verse 26, it lets us know that their issue is they're seeking him because they go and they can't find him. They go across the ocean to find him. And said, when did you come here? Jesus doesn't answer the question 26. What he does say is this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled So they're not seeking him even because of the sign that points to who he is. But they want their next meal. We're going to see this comparison to the manna in the wilderness. And the manna came every morning. And so they got food yesterday and they're going to go, well, if you're greater than Moses, where's the food for today? And every single one of these responses, as we're going to see, is going to revolve around this question of what you should prioritize in your life what you should seek and Jesus says don't seek verse 27 don't work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him the father God set his seal and really the big idea the big question here set up for them is they take this idea of Jesus mentioning work And they frame their question, verse 28, and they say to him, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus is going to answer them, not with a plural answer. I think this is probably one of the more interesting things as you study and you get into the text. They ask about how do we work the works of God? And Jesus responds and says, actually, there's something singular that you need to do. And so he says, this is the work, singular, so that we may, or this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. And so you introduce this whole concept of the crowd looking and asking the question, and us as readers, what does God require of you? If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, It's only natural to go, what do you want me to do? It's very human to say, well, there must be something I can do. Is there something I can give? Is there some way I can serve? If I I do enough, the idea of kind of penance or something, um, sacrifice, serving, will that allow me to be acceptable to God? And Jesus says, no. There's only one thing you can do, and that is going to be believe. And so 26 to 29, he begins, and he's never going to leave belief, but he's going to kind of clarify belief in the one in whom you believe. Because everything about faith and belief isn't just that you believe, isn't just that you have faith, but it's the object. What are you believing in? Who are you putting your absolute, complete trust in? And so verse 26 to 29 
it's this that he says, you believe specifically in the one God has sent. John's been developing this all the way from chapter 1 until now, that Jesus has been sent from God. He is God's son. He is God himself. Their issue with the sign, even I think Jesus' response, he could give them another sign. He said, think back to, I guess, verse 25, just as a little bit of context here. Of, Rabbi, when did you come here? You might have said, well, I walked on the water, got in the boat, and came here. But it's not where Jesus goes. And there's a way even which you can see the signs here kind of be, come to a point where they're almost corrosive of a genuine belief. They get confused with what Jesus is doing and his blessing as opposed to who he is as a person. And Jesus knows that, which is why here in 26 and 27, he questions something only Jesus can question, which is he questions their motive. Remember chapter 2, verse 25, he knew what was in man. He knows why they're truly there. And so he's able to ask and to question, why are you really here? And I know why you're here. It's because of the lows. You want more food. In fact, I find fascinating in Mark, because remember the account of Jesus walking on water is in every single gospel. It's unique in that way of all the miracles. The only one in all four gospels and there, John, or Mark chapter 6, verse 52, it says that they, that's talking of even the 12, had not gained any insight about the loaves. So even the 12 at this point have not gained any insight, but their heart was hardened. I think probably explicitly one of Mark's focus is he focuses on the disciples' fear in that boat, which we don't see so much in John. Of course, it makes sense. You're about to die. They're fearful. Jesus just fed... 20,000 people, you're afraid. In fact, in Mark, you even have a little more context. He's been teaching, uh, particularly uh, with parables in the kingdom of God. And he just got done explaining to you, the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow, but you're so fearful, you think you're going to die. No, you've misunderstood. Your heart is hardened. So even they, at this point, don't understand. Now, they are going to be different, though, in the way they receive Jesus, and even at the end, they are still there following, which is going to be Kind of interesting to see as we march forward. But Jesus is going to say that he is ultimately, and it's going to be built out through this whole discourse, he is the true manna. He is the one that gives food that endures. And more specifically here is that it's not so much the food that endures, but the one who eats it endures. That's kind of what he's getting after here. It's food that you're going to eat that you will then Live. That's more important here. And he's saying, don't work in such a way for things that are simply temporal, but for something that is eternal. Saying that is something only one person can give, and he uses his title here of the Son of Man, which is not a lesser title. This would be picking up on Daniel chapter 7. And he's saying, what about the Son of Man? Well, it's the one on whom the Father God set his seal. Jesus is the one God has sent. He is the one that they should have been looking for and expecting. They're saying, he says, I am the one, the Son of Man, the Messiah, which God has set his seal on. The crowd does not have 
really you could say the proper goal, proper motivation for what they want. Their focus simply gets put on the attention of, okay, if you want to do works or we need to do works, what do we do? Do we do those works of God? I think this expression here, maybe this is helpful if you think about this, what do they mean by works of God? It simply refers to the works that God performs. Not so much the works that, excuse me, that God performs, but to the works God requires is the idea of this expression. What, is, what does God require of us? And what they seem to imply is, tell us what God requires and we will do it. We'll perform. You can look and say, well, that's, that's probably a little naive. You're saying they don't recognize their inability to do so. They evidence absolutely no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is something you can't go get. That it is a gift, which he's saying is only given by one, which is the son of man. So verse 29 is really Jesus' way here of setting them straight that the work of God that you need to do is simply believe. It's the root from which everything else flows. You see the message even you say in Matthew early onwards, Jesus is talking about repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But I would even argue going that's downstream from belief. That is, it's a fruit. Repentance is a fruit of belief. And he's just simply going back to this gift you need to believe and that belief will change, therefore then, naturally your actions in the, your life. And so Jesus sets them straight that the one whom he has sent, God has sent, what do you need to do? You need to believe in him. There's no good work, no good deed, no service to others that will qualify. It is simply believing in the one whom God has sent. That it is the only way to eternal life. I can't help but think of this kind of passage in a book I read early on in my Christian walk uh, titled, Don't Waste Your Life. And he's getting after the things that you can do that are simply material, that you can build and build and build, but there's no lasting value, whether because it was did not to the honor of the Lord, or again, it didn't have any eternal value. It doesn't mean you can't have a job. It doesn't mean you can't make money. It's just, again, back to the motivation. Why are you doing those things to honor the Lord, to provide for your family, and all these things that are worshipful acts of service, Romans 12, 1. But this idea of this food that you get, that sustains, that perishes, it's done from some kind of selfish motivation for selfish gain. What's really here is Jesus saying, don't live your life never having really asked the question, what is this all for? And just go through the motion, asking important questions. Think of, for me, a huge question, again, thinking back for my early walk was, the old question, what is the chief end of man? And that's, what's the chief? What's, what's the primary? What, what do I need most of all to pursue in this life? It's a profound question. You look at the old catechism answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I can remember mulling that over and over and over because what does that look like? Well, to each person, you're going to glorify God in different ways with the way you work and the way you serve and all those things. And what does it look like then to while you do that to enjoy him no matter the circumstances? It's a big idea. Like it's easy to focus on the here and the now and the material, which is what the crowd is focused on. But this is pointing you to something bigger that is eternal. 
Like there's an idea that uh, you, you do all of these things so that you can relax later. And it's kind of what we have even as a culture with that kind of retirement. I work here, work here, work here, and then I relax and retire. But yet, for the Christian, there really, there is no stop. There's no retirement from serving others. Again, you can retire from a, say, vocational work, from gainful employment, but you're still looking, how can I use my time and my gifts and my talents to serve the Lord? There's really no ministry that's ever below. But it starts, of course, with believing. Because if you can't, if you don't believe in the one whom God has sent, no, nothing you do is going to be pleasing to God. Because if you don't honor the Son, he will not honor you. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. So he's saying, believe. What does God require? Belief in the one whom God sent. Well, no surprise, if you look at verse 30 through 36, this next big section... What does God require of you? Belief. <laughs> but he kind of clarifies and uses a different analogy. Both are Jesus. But he's saying, and he's going to use this picture of what they would know so well of the manna being provided to Israel. Believe in the one from heaven. We saw that throughout the discourse in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Jesus is from above. You have to be, you need someone from above who could save you. Someone who's not just fleshly, one who's fully God and fully man. That's what you need. Believe in the one from heaven. Look at verse 30. Because they're going to respond. You'd like for them at this point to go, okay, then we believe. But they still are thinking of the material. And so they ask him, well then, what then do you do? for a sign so that we may, believe, may see and believe you. What work do you perform? It's interesting. They, they actually look and they say, okay, give us another sign. You show us work, and then we might believe. Seems to be what they're after. And they say, and this is where they start to get after both Moses and this miracle. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, we have a biblical text, Jesus, where they're quoting the Bible to Jesus and saying, listen, if you're saying you're greater than Moses, then you provide. Because Moses provided bread every single day in the wilderness for his people. We got bread yesterday, now we're hungry, we want bread today. They should see something greater than their father saw. But Jesus answers them, and this is going to involve, they still don't understand. I truly, truly, I say to you, verse 32, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus is trying to persuade them that you have given Moses way too much credit. It's not Moses who provides for you. And I think even this is he's starting to chip away and say, it's not the Mosaic law that gives you salvation. It never was. It never will be. It's the Father. In the wilderness, was it Moses who gave you bread? And I think they would go, well, yes and no. And the answer is, well, who really gave you bread? Well, it's, Moses didn't do anything. It was the Father who provided the bread. And he also provides you true bread from heaven. They missed the point. They looked at, you could say, the sign, and they didn't see the Father giving. They simply looked at it from who they could see, which is Moses. 
And Jesus is saying pretty explicitly, which he's going to, you can, from the rest of this, get there very easily to say, I am the true bread of heaven. He's going to make that very explicit because they're, they're going to almost try to skate out of it, but he's not going to let them. He's going to be very explicit. He's the true heaven, the true Torah. The manna from heaven, it perished. In fact, if you remember, right, you couldn't even keep it for a day. It perished. So it's a beautiful analogy because this is what Jesus is, what he provides, will never spoil. It's eternal. But it does here serve as a type to point to something that was sustaining that God gave. It's kind of like the sacrifice that covered sin, but then pointed to a sacrifice that would cover sin once and for all in the sacrifice of Christ. Look at verse 33. He continues that the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So often in John, he does this. He makes the decisive factor, this issue of God sending the Son, which comes down because he said, I am the bread of life, which is going to be very explicit in the next uh, two verses down. But also, he's going to say, the decisive factor here again, just like in John chapter 3, the most famous, you know, John 3, 16. It's not going to be whether you have a Jewish heritage. It's whether, verse 45, if you jump down there, the issue is, and they shall all be taught by God. Are you one who is taught by God? Are you one who believes in the Son? That is going to be the question, not where you're from. Hence why Jesus gives life to not just Israel, but to the world. And the world over and over rejects, yet he still goes. He dies for them while they are still yet enemies. Their response, they say, verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. They seem to be thinking still material to some degree. They at least haven't connected. This is, they've not connected that this is Jesus. And so Jesus makes it explicitly clear. And he says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That is to say, he provides it every way. Think of the analogy, what do we need? We need food and we need water. And he says, I am all those things that give sustenance for all of life. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Well, Jesus insists, if you come to me, you're never going to be hungry. But he also is stating the issue is belief. And what we've seen is you will not believe. Earlier, he references the idea of, in uh, chapter 5, the unwillingness. They're unwilling. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Remember, I mentioned there this 30 through 36, you could say in a way is from man's perspective, it's both him saying, you need to believe, and also, you need to be willing to come. And they are unwilling. Because what does 35 say? I am the bread of life. And then it says, what's the issue? How do I receive it? You come to me. But you have not, verse 36, believed. Therefore, coming to him and believing are parallel. They're the same thing. The crowd witnessed the divine miracle worker, Jesus. They're curious. They want more food. You're going to see them trying to make him king earlier. There's political ambitions after the feeding of the 5,000. 
All those things are kind of engaged, but not their belief. Why? Because they're focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on that which is temporal. And even more so, you can see their focus is on the sign over the substance. That is, the bread over the bread of life. They thought the bread as food, not as the bigger picture, which is it represented something of God providing for them. Or a sign that God's son provides for them through the multiplying of it to the crowd just the day before. They assume God's provision and they're not yet thoughtful or thankful in their response. This isn't just true of them. I think it could be true of us as well, thinking of what does it look like to believe in the one from heaven? What is it to look at him as all sufficient? Because that's what he's saying in verse 35. What do you need? You need bread and water. He says, I am bread and water. What's he saying? He's not saying that he's just going to give you your next meal. He's saying, I'm all that you need. If you want more, I always think of it this way. I think sometimes the books of the Bible, uh, different things, and it's like, what should I study? And you want a verse, and I go, well, there's a book for this. It's called Colossians. And you'll see over and over again that Christ is everything. He is all sufficient. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is simply a way of saying that metaphorically. He is the bread that will never perish. He's the food, and he is the one who gives the living water that you will never thirst again. Well, how do we live out that? Do we live in such a way where that is how we live and how we act? Or do we look at other things when we communicate needs and wants? If you're like me, I got a speech many times growing up on needs and wants, and I used to think everything that I wanted, I needed. And it would be clarified, is that a need or is that a want? What do we communicate when we say that word need? Do we need it? I think Jesus is saying here, do you need bread to live physically? Well, I guess the answer there, of course, is yes. However, there's something you need for eternal life, which is belief in the one sent from heaven. But there's many things that you could say we want. Maybe you want more out of this life materialistically. And he's saying you're, you're barking up the wrong tree that's not going to bring fulfillment and contentment. You're looking in for something else to satisfy. I can feel that pull, a need for a break. We're always tempted by if I can just get away or kind of push my problems, forget about them, go on a vacation or etc. Rather than go to Christ and his word and say, how does he meet this need? How does he meet this, whether it's emotional or physical? What does the word have to say about this? Maybe I'm putting my hopes and trust in something other than Christ because you might notice, how do you know that? Well, when you lose that thing and you're devastated, you go, you know what? I think I trusted too much in that. Christ is saying, I'm sufficient. I have everything that you need for, as Peter puts it, for life and for godliness. Come to him, the one who is from heaven. In this particular thing, he's the manna that has come down, the true manna from heaven who provides everything you need for life. 
Well, that's kind of from, again, our perspective. But if you look at it from God's perspective, you're going to see, because what you're left with here in verse 36 is this. And I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And what you're left with is this question of failure. If Jesus' ministry is going to be marked by success in a worldly sense of more people, more followers, doesn't 36 leave you with a sense of his mission is not going to according to plan? But 37 through 40 is what gives you the confidence. No, God's will will be accomplished. Because yes, these do not believe, but the ones who will, it is absolutely true that they will come to him. This is just amazing. And what it, the way I put it, at least if you think of this idea of what does he ask? What does he require? It's really the one thing in three different ways. <laughs> believing one in the, son, the one God sent, believing the one from heaven, and then here in this last section, you're gonna see believe in the obedient son because he is obedient. The son is going to honor the father and the father is going to honor the son. He's obedient even to the point of death on a cross, as Philippians says. Look at verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives to me. So again, 36, he's saying, you don't believe, but then let me remind you. And again, like John does so often, especially you're going to think in John 17 and other places, the high priestly prayer, he's going to pull the curtain back on things that are almost too glorious for us to see. This Trinitarian relationship with the Father and the Son. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. His confidence is that the Father is going to bring about his redemptive purpose. The flow of the verse is this, that all that the Father gives to Jesus as his gift to his Son will surely come to him. Whoever comes to Jesus undertakes to keep, Jesus is going to keep him and preserve him. It's this, if he is yours, he will, or if you are his, he will keep you. Why? Verse 38, because I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So again, it goes back to the obedient son. He does not what he, but what is according to the will. And this is the phrase over and over. Do your underliner or you like to mark or highlight my own will, but the will of him who sent me, everything is going to be from here on about will, the Father's will. Now this is the will, verse 39, of him who sent me, that all that was his, what he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And my, I myself will raise him up on the last day. There's a couple things here you're going to see, not only the, the workings of God's sovereignty and salvation, but even, again, which I find this, I don't know if I ever recognized this or saw this before, the connection keeps going back to give you confidence in the resurrection, which is, of course, this is pre-resurrected Christ, but he's giving you confidence. If you go back to chapter 5, he addressed this, and he addresses it again to give you confidence. Does he care about you? Yes. Does he care about your life. He even cares about your body and that he will raise it again. Chapter 5, verse 20. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. 
And those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Why was that? Remember back to chapter 5, the whole argument that Jesus is going to get honor because the Father says, you are given all judgment and all authority. And he comes right back here again. It's the will of him who sent me that all that are his given to me, I lose nothing. That is, the Father gives the Son, the Son keeps them. And part of that is, he keeps them to the very end and he will raise them up, giving them the glorified bodies. This is amazing. If this happens, then this happens, then this happens. It's what some call Romans 8, 29 through 30, the golden chain, where Paul says it this way, because those whom he foreknew, which is talking about before the creation of time, an intimate knowledge, he knew you. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many other brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that is to say, if he knew you for the foundation of the world, as Ephesians puts it, if he predestined you, he's going to glorify you and he's going to do everything in between. Calling justifying, glorifying. If this happens, it's a golden chain that will not be broken. That's what Jesus is saying. He has been given that authority from the Father. He's going to preserve you from now to the end. What are the implications of this reality? Again, we're called to believe in the one who God sent, believe in one him, believe in the obedient son, which is to say believe in Jesus is one and the same thing here. Understanding, though, different ways in which he receives honor and glory. But of this last section, and I stole this from John Piper, just give credit where credit is due, but I thought it was so helpful and so good. He gives these statements on God's sovereign work, and I didn't think I could say it better. Of these last verses, he gives these five statements. Number one, he says that God, just the framework, we've kind of said this, but he frames it in a way that, number one, God gives his chosen one to Jesus. So just think about it logically, what's this is saying? And number two, because God gives them to Jesus, they come to him. So verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come. You didn't come unwilling though, because again, there seems to be, he is changing hearts, giving them the desire to come. And then those given to Jesus are going to be kept by him. That's that idea of whoever comes to him will never be cast out. He's not going to lose anything, verse 39, but he's going to raise it up on the last day. Number four says that very thing, that Jesus will raise them up from the dead on the last day, which is the confidence you and I need. Think of a soldier. You think of just watching and reading documentaries, World War II and other biographies, you, you see kind of a common theme that those who do well, they kind of accept it. They don't think about how do I live? How do I survive? They simply go, I'm probably dead and I've got a job to do. There's an acceptance. Why? Because they kind of have accepted the job as it, as it is. I think as the Christian, this confidence that Jesus will raise you up on the last day kind of changes everything about anxiousness, worry, fear. This is saying, you know, if the worst thing happens, I die, 
I go to be with the Lord and he will raise me up on the last day and I have absolute confidence because of what we've seen here. It is the will of the Father and the will of the Father will happen. It gives us absolute confidence to go out and to do and be obedient to him. Why? Because that unshakable foundation is the Father's will. The unshakable foundation of it all, of all these truths, is the will of God. As I said, you look at verse 38. He didn't come to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And what is the will? The will, verse 39, is that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. It all goes back to how do you have confidence? We saw before a lot of that confidence is built in the love of the Father and the Son. But here you see a lot of that confidence then is rooted also in saying that there's nothing stronger than the Creator. His purposes, His plans, that these will all come together. It's amazing as you think of these truths. But it all goes back to God requiring, how do I receive this? I believe. Particularly, though, belief is marked by, in, again, the human side of this, what does it look like? The other way of saying it is coming to him. So you can ask yourself, how do I know? How can I be one of those who are his that the Father gives? He says, believe, yes, but he also frames it in verse 35 this way, and it's a good segue to the Lord's table this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. And he doesn't frame it in belief, but in action, because belief is the root, and then out of belief comes action, which is one who comes to me. And if you come to him, he says, he will keep you right, but you will never hunger, and you will never thirst. And if you come to him like that, he's saying, you are mine. You have been given to the Son. And if you've been given by the Father to the Son, you will be kept and you will be raised on the last day. The urge here is don't go with the crowds who are unwilling to come, but listen, read, understand as we see over the coming weeks, the call to come to Christ, believe in who he is and take those promises that if you are one who has come, then he will keep you and he will raise you up on the last day. Father, as we come to your table this morning and we meditate on the truths of the gospel, Lord, help us be amazed that we think of our testimony, the way in which you changed our heart and our desires, the way in time someone, a parent, a friend, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher came and presented the good news of Jesus Christ, confronted us with our sin, called us to repent and believe. And perhaps we didn't even know why, but in your sovereign plan, our hearts changed. And as we had run for so long, at that moment we changed because you gave us new hearts new desires, a love for you to willingly come to you. What a reminder, each one of yours, each individual here who has believed the gospel, their own testimony of faith in you, 
each of those unique in their own way, but representing this truth and the confidence we can have not only for this life, but for the next. So Lord, help us again look to, for us, back to the cross. That the death of Christ has paid for our sin. That we might be reconciled to you, that we might have a relationship with you, that we might honor the Son. But it all starts with, do we believe, Lord? I pray that that would be the desire of everyone here to believe Jesus is your son sent from heaven to bring salvation to each one of us. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.